This podcast is brought to you by TriStar Gold. Enjoy. This is the Commodity Culture Podcast, where we interview prominent investors, fund managers, analysts, and company CEOs to give you an edge when it comes to investing in the commodity space. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Commodity Culture, where our goal is to make you a better investor in the commodities space. My name is Jesse Day. Before we dive in, standard disclaimer, nothing here is investment advice. Do your own due diligence. And today's guest is the CEO of TriStar Gold, an exploration and development company focused on developing their flagship property, the Castelo de Sonhos Gold Project in Brazil. It's Nick Appleyard. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jesse. It's an honor to have you on. And I want to start before we get to the company with a broad overview of the gold sector at present. Obviously, we saw nominal all-time highs being reached at the end of 2023. And now we're hovering just above 2000. What are the main catalysts you think that could potentially send the gold price back to all-time highs and perhaps have it stay there for a sustained period of time? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. It's one we get quite a lot. You know, we like you said, we've had some really nice moves and gold does seem to be trending upwards right now. You know, it's it's I always believe that it's it's stuff that we can't tell. I mean, if we knew what would it would be, it would be there already. And and as investors, we would be piling into gold. I mean, if I knew it was going to be twenty five hundred tomorrow, I would mortgage my house to that limit and put it all on gold. Um, I don't think anyone really does, and not, I would actually caution people. As you just said in your intro, do your own work and be cautious of people who tell you they know what's going to happen. I don't think any of us really do, but it's definitely trending up right now. And um, you know, and the world's a little unstable, but I would just, um, yeah, I think something that we, we can't foresee right now is is generally what makes the big moves, the big sustainable moves. Yeah, black swan events or, or other things, absolutely. And nobody knows the future. I like that answer because usually you get a litany of different reasons why gold's going to 3,000. And um, it, that sort of hyperbolic language doesn't really help investors. Um, you know, many point out that gold mining companies at the moment are extraordinarily undervalued compared to the metal itself. Uh, do you agree with that sentiment? And what do you think it would take to close the gap between the the price of the the miners and the metal itself? Yeah, and we are definitely seeing some of the weakest valuations that I've seen since I've been in, in, in you know, working in this area, which is now a lot of years. Um, you know, what I see on sort of more than just sort of the g- generic, the whole mining sector, it's, you know, the explorers seem to get valuation sometimes when they see something good and they develop the producers are getting a certain valuation. It's weaker than normal, but it's, they're getting something. I think the developers are really getting left behind right now. And, and that's the sector we find ourselves in. Um, I think we have to all remember these are all cyclic. So, you know, it's, they have weak times and they have strong times, but yeah, the, it's very weak right now. To change that, it'll be something. It'll, something will click and it's, everything's connected. So, I mean, it could be the interest rates drop that triggers more M&A activity. Um, and then the whole thing starts to flow. People realize, wow, these developers are so cheap. All of a sudden money's getting cheaper. They can build their mines or the producers can borrow the money to build the mines. They're going to go after those developers. That's where we need to be. Something like that will just click and change it. And all of a sudden people recognize the, the discount we're trading at these days and, and it'll change quickly. And that is one thing I've remembered, you know, sort of think of from my 30 odd years in the, in the industry now is 
when things move, they usually move quite quickly, especially in the junior sector. You know, they stocks have usually doubled before you realize that they things have turned around. Right. And you do have a pretty unique perspective on the sector as the CEO of a gold exploration and development company. Are there any insights you could share with us into the gold market from that perspective? I think the real thing is, you know, there's got to be a reason for people to buy. So, you know, if people come into the sector and buy, you know, junior developers, which is where we, where we sort of see ourselves. Right now, there's no driving factor. It's sort of, there's nothing making people think, if I don't do it now, it's going to, they're going to, I'm going to miss out. So, yeah, I, it, it's going to be the start of M&A activity, which drives that, I think, whether that's driven by interest rates or, or just a couple of companies starting that M&A trend, um, which we haven't really seen a lot of. I think that's what it'll get it going. You know, you'll just see a couple of things get acquired. Then all of a sudden, all the other producers who've been watching a lot of things, you know, even us, we have conversations with producers all the time, but you feel no urgency from their side of the fence. As soon as that urgency gets created, you'll see a real change in the, you know, the investment perspective of this sector. And do you foresee more institutional investment flowing into gold at any point? Central banks obviously have been buying gold at a record pace. Um, I mean, switching more to the, the retail side as well, financial advisors do not recommend gold for their clients by and large. It's still kind of outside of the mainstream finance discussion. Do you think we could see that change and even potentially gold mining companies be seen as an attractive place to park capital for for institutional investors? I think, I mean, we will. Um, I don't know when. I mean, I think I find you know, as far as retail brokers, <clears throat> um, you know, they're, they're, they usually follow trends and, and, and sell what they can sell. Um, so, yeah, we will, I think, but it'll take a little while before they come in. You know, I think we'll see a lot more smart money moving before the retail brokers are pitching it to everybody on this, you know, everyone, everyone out there. Um, there is a, I think of it as a bit of a food chain. I think you'll see the M&A activity, the really smart investors first, big institutions after that, and then the retailer probably the, towards the end of that food chain, you know, maybe historically come in at the highs rather than the lows. Um, so I think you will see that, but I don't know when, and I don't, I don't, I don't think that'll be a driving factor really. It'll be more uh, a result of the driving factors we've spoken about. Right. Now, do you buy into the notion that gold is sound money? You know, I've spoken to different CEOs of gold companies, and some of them have differing views because there's obviously this, this belief out there that gold is sound money that your average person can take possession of to store wealth outside of the financial system with zero counterparty risk. Obviously, we saw banks go bust in 2023. We're seeing insane levels of government debt that many people are pointing to as completely untenable over the long run. Central banks buying like crazy. Is this a time when holding some amount of physical gold uh, is important in your view? I think it always is. I think it's a really good backup plan. I think you'd probably, you know, over the normal sort of terms that we look at and you know, you probably wouldn't do that well if you had everything in gold or, you know, precious metals right now and you'd find yourself Ill illiquid and it'd be difficult. But um, I think it's a really good backup plan. And I think it's going to grow and become more of a backup plan as we move into more digital currencies where you can't even get notes in your hand and it's, you know, you're really doubtful about, you know, well, you don't actually understand. I mean, I must admit, I've tried to understand digital currencies multiple times 
and it sounds simple, but when you get into it, it's really difficult to understand. Um, and then at that point, I think, so in the future, I think gold and precious metals will have a really important role to play as a backup of wealth. Um, no, I truly believe that, you know, I don't think it'll replace it. I don't think everything will be that, but, you know, to have a percentage of your stuff in that, um, just as a little story, you know, I've, I've got younger, younger children, 10 and 12, and I'm teaching them like their birthday presents, five ounce Christmas presents, five ounce silver bars. Nice. And they understand that, okay, that's something solid you can hold and you can go and sell and it's worth the money and no one can take away from you, but you can lose it. So they have to be careful on that side. Uh, so yeah, I think, I think it is a store of wealth that's going to be important and going to remain important. Well, gold mining is a very tough business. So many factors come into play, so many challenges to be overcome. In your experience as the CEO of TriStar Gold and your previous experience in the mining industry, what are some of the biggest challenges challenges you faced and how did you overcome them? I think this question it is interesting because you said it now and in the past. In the past, I think it, it was very different. In the past, it was a lot more technical and a lot more how many ounces of gold you could find. And, you know, and, and then everything else could be overcome with enough, you know, throw a few dollars at it and you could, you could fix everything else. These days, as far as the projects are concerned, it, it's almost done a complete flip. It's like, can I build a mine in that location? You know, so when we did the due diligence on TriStar before I did a management takeover, probably 60, 70% of our due diligence was, okay, if there is the gold here and if it is metallurgy is good and the mining is okay and the processing is okay, can we build a mine here? You know, can you get the community buy-in? Can you get environmental work? Does indigenous work? Does the jurisdiction work? So those are the biggest issues. And then as you move forward with the project, managing those issues, managing them so they stay on board and stay in favor of the company um, is a real tightrope to walk these days because you need to have a com supportive community. So you need to invest money and time into that community. But every year you've got to do more than you did the year before. So you really have to judge that very, very carefully. Um, so at the project level, that's it, is that judging how you manage the community, manage local authorities, um, at a, at a high level, obviously, you know, raising money is always the hardest thing for a, for a junior. And that, I think that's a perfect segue to discuss TriStar Gold, because I definitely want to talk about the jurisdiction you're in and, and the, uh, governmental regulations, et cetera, in just a moment. But before we do, for those who are unfamiliar with TriStar Gold, could you give us an overview of the company? Yeah, absolutely. So we're a single asset company. The, the deposit is called, project is called Castelo de Sonhos or the Castle of Dreams in Pará State, Brazil. Um, it's fairly advanced right now. We've, I've been working on it for seven, seven years now. We've completed a pre-feasibility study, um, very robust economics. And as I said, with the due diligence we did, it's in a very good location. Um, and we're getting that very close to receiving a main environmental permit. So that's our focus now is putting this, making this so we are one of the very, very few multi-million ounce deposits in a good jurisdiction with an environmental permit. You know, we think that that's going to be the really big thing that differentiates us and starts us to move out of that developer cycle towards producers and also makes us stand out from the developers when this M&A cycle kicks in, you know, hopefully soon here and, you know, and um, people start to look at what to buy. 
And let's now switch to discussing the jurisdiction. You mentioned this is one of the biggest challenges being faced today in the mining sector. Give us some color on the jurisdiction you find yourself in, Pada State, in Brazil. Um, we've seen a lot of jurisdictional risk cause issues in 2023 in the mining industry. You know, the, the coup in Niger for the uranium sector comes to mind. Cobra Panama mine also comes to mind. Um, is Brazil a good place to be as a gold mining company? And what is your relationship like with the local government and community? Yeah, as we said, the jurisdiction is critical. Um, and Brazil is, I mean, Brazil's huge. We, I mean, even, even I always forget how big it is until you have to fly across it and you're sort of flying for hours and hours and hours. It's, you know, not dissimilar to the continental US. <clears throat> um, but it's also, you know, I, like to think of Brazil a little bit, almost like Europe in some ways. The, the states are very autonomous and powerful. Um, so what state you're in matters a lot. You know, I mean, maybe again, US is a good analogy where you can mine in Nevada, but California, you might want to forget it. So Pará State is probably one of the the preeminent mining jurisdiction within Brazil. So it's equivalent of Nevada, Ontario, or um, Western Australia. Maybe you know, it's a fairly remote location, fairly um, underpopulated um, with a booming mining industry. And um, I think very importantly, what we found now with an educated um, and efficient mining authorities as well. And that's a real, that's the one thing that we've, we've sort of had really good experiences with. We have, we're working with the state environmental authorities and the state mining authorities. And um, both of them have been highly professional um, uh, you know, reasonably efficient and, um, and, and really a pleasure to work with. And I think that sort of reflects us as well as them. You know, they know their job is to permit in advance, you know, the, the good projects run by the good people and the good, you know, so when they see that, they help you. And, you know, and I, we do hear of other companies having struggling and trouble, but then you look at the work they've done and they go, well, it was terrible work. They should have had trouble. So I think, you know, once you get into the good books, it, it, it stays good. The other thing I think that's changed, um, you know, Brazil has always been a mining industry. So everybody understands mining as a part of their life. You know, if you talk to anyone in the region around us, they recognize mining and they know it. They're not like anti-mining just because they're anti-mining. They're, they're someone in their family will work on a mine somewhere and they'll know that it has benefits. So yeah, we find it a really, really good jurisdiction to work in. Um, the other thing I was going to say, we've, we've also seen a change since what they called Operation Car Wash, when there would be, you know, there's a lot of scandal about corruption in Brazil. Um, and what we find now is when we're dealing with all these authorities, there's, there's like a new generation of professionals there. The older people have left who worked under that old scheme. And a lot of the time now we're dealing with the head of the A&M, the mining agency for the state or the head of the environmental agency. For the, and they're, you know, they're in their forties. They're not a, a 60 year old guy who's sort of been through that whole, um, bad system. Um, and we really do find that they're really good to work with, you know. So you do have a pre-feasibility study at the Castello de Sonos gold project. Could you run us through, um, the results of that PFS? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we completed the PFS about two years ago. Um, the deposit is called a paleoplaster. It means it's sediment hosted. Uh, very similar to Tarkor from, from Goldfield's sort of flagship project in Ghana and Jacobina in Brazil. There are other deposits around the world like this there. Um, they're famous for being very simple and very clean. No sulfides, no, no deleterious elements at all. So it's, 
a very clean deposit, and that goes into making a very simple and, and you know and um, an efficient PFS and, and and mine. So we ran this at about ten thousand tons a day. So we are producing about one hundred twenty thousand ounces a year. That generated for us a reserve of one point four million ounces um, that we would produce over eleven year mine life. Uh, the all-in sustaining cost was about nine hundred dollars, uh, you know, net present value three hundred twenty million dollars after tax at fifteen fifty gold. So, you know, I think that's you know there'll be some escalation on some of our costs, but nowhere near as much as the escalation we've seen in the gold price from fifteen fifty to two thousand. You know, we'll trump that. So those numbers will get better and better. And you know, like our rate of return post tax was twenty eight percent. You know, we're not going to see that going down from now. So it's a very Robust project that was defined by the PFS, and um, and then on top of that, a very clean project. You know, sort of no sulphide, no ARD, no no other deleterious elements at all. It's it's, it's almost like sand, quartzite, and and a few grains of gold. Um, so we've developed a very clean mine, um, and it's also doesn't touch on any indigenous reserves or any environmental reserves. So the location is great as well. Great. Well, what about the permitting status? Um, how is that coming along for you? Uh, what What are the next steps to advance the project to production? Yeah. So when we completed the PFS, um, you know, we figured the best value we could get for our shareholders now is to get that permit because you know there's a lot of projects advancing or the resources or drilling. Very few multi-million ounce assets in a good jurisdiction with a permit. So we wanted to get that. So we've been working on it since sort of December 2021 now. And we're getting very, very close. We've um, we've been through pretty well everything. We completed a, a very detailed EIA. I think it's about twenty five hundred pages. It is a very detailed study um, done with the help of agencies in Brazil, but also overseen by some you know external experts as well. So it's a world class study. And um, the the steps you have to go through that you submit your EIA. It's reviewed by the agency. They send you some questions. We answer those. Then they come to a site visit to you know, ground truth what we've told them. They've done that. We've been through that. Then you have a public hearing where you uh, set up a big meeting in town, you know, the town closest to the project, and announce to everybody in the region and invite everyone you can, describe to them what the project is going to be after you've already answered the questions for the to the authorities. That town hall meeting was in early December or late November. Early and um, late November, actually, and um, really that was the last last of our sort of involvement. You now we had a couple of minor follow up questions. We've completed them, and really we anticipate now receiving this environmental permit this quarter. You know, we, is, we yeah, there is all something go wrong, but we can't think what it what it is. You know, it's it's going really really well, and um, as I sort of alluded to earlier, our interaction with the authorities is is very positive. I mean. If, if they see something we missed by mistake, they'll just call us and tell us and we fix it and it's done. Um, the interaction is really good. It feels like everybody, both the agencies and ourselves, are, have the same aim. You know, let's build a proper mine here with proper environmental controls that's going to benefit the community, the state, and, and the company and, and our employees, you know. So, so yeah, it's going really well. We, we anticipate getting that permit very, very soon, and that's going to be a, a real big milestone for us as a company, and we'll, hopefully we'll really set us apart from others. 
Great. And then what, once the permit is um, secured, what does the timeline look like to potential production at the mine? And any other notable milestones maybe you could mention planned here for TriStar Gold in 2024? Yeah, so this, this year, 2024, obviously the, the, the first big milestone is going to be getting that environmental permit. As I said, we hope for that in these next couple of months, February, March time. Um, then as a board of directors for TriStar, We'll need to make a decision on, okay, what's the path forward? Do we, do we go and move forward, build this ourselves? Do we partner with someone or do we, do we sell? And, and really the meetings, I'm, you know, I am one of the board members, one of the seven board members. The meetings we've had so far and, and what we've said publicly is we're going to do whatever's best for the shareholders. So when we get to that point, we will, you know, look at moving forward, you know, raising money, moving forward. We will look at the ability to bring a company part, a partner. In from another company who could maybe have bring some experience in construction and, and, and operations that we, we are limited on. Or we could look at a sale. I mean, we will look at everything at that point. But yeah, you know, I think the, the bottom line is this project will should be drilling for the final feasibility work, you know, by the, you know, the second half of this year, hopefully. But whether it's us, us and someone else working together, um, it's still to be seen, but you know, the feasibility will kick off. The feasibility on this one is pretty simple because it is such a simple project. There's nothing at shallow open pits and the simplest process route you can imagine. So it's really just getting the resource and reserves up to a higher confidence level from probable to proven, um, you know, a bit of drilling and then another level of detail on the plant and the dam. And that's really about it. So, you know, so we'd anticipate that feasibility be, being completed next year. And then in engineering and construction for, you know, production in 2027, probably. But, you know, who owns it? Who does it? That, that's still to be decided. I mean, we've started to build a team with Marcus Brewster, our COO, who's been the general manager of large paleoplasma mines in West Africa. It's the perfect person to run, you know, this sort of operation and, 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 and mine. Um, but we'll, we're open for everything. He's also the perfect person to oversee a partnership with us, with someone else who's got maybe more construction experience in Brazil. So we're, we're open. Um, it'll be interesting. It's going to be exciting. And it'll the decisions will be made for the benefit of the shareholder. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Nick, and sharing all your knowledge with the audience about both the gold market and TriStar Gold. Um, for those who want to learn more about the company, I will be putting links in the description below to both the company website as well as social media and really appreciate you coming on the show, Nick. No, absolutely. And thank you very much for having me. And, um, you know, the other thing I will just mention at the end here is I, I'm always available to talk to, to anybody if they, if they have any questions as well. So, but thank you very much for having me. Commodity Culture is a podcast that covers investing in commodities and natural resources. If you'd like to hear more, be sure to subscribe so you are always alerted of the latest episodes.